Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Explanatory note. As I explained at the start of the first two volumes of these memoirs, which were entitled The Fun Factory and The Boxcar of Fun, they came into my hands quite by chance. When my wife and I moved into the house in Streatham, where we've lived for twenty-odd years now, we became friendly with the elderly lady who lived in the ground-floor flat next door, a Mrs Lander. One day we happened to be talking about my interest in comedy and comedians, and she said, "'Of course my grandfather knew Charlie Chaplin.' "'Really?' I said. "'Oh, yes,' Mrs. Lander said. "'They were really quite thick, apparently.' "'Eventually Mrs. Lander moved to her residential care home, "'and then, a few months later, her daughter dropped round to tell us "'that sadly she'd passed away. "'She wanted me to thank you for your kindness,' the daughter said, "'and asked me to make sure you had this. "'The battered old trunk she left me, which was brown, "'reinforced by wooden ribs, and secured by what looked like an army belt.' had been used as a repository for the memorabilia of a career treading the boards. There were wooden swords and shields in the Roman style, and some old-fashioned football kit. There was also a big black cape, of the sort you might see a magician wearing, and a top hat, and a mechanical contraption with a couple of off-white feathers clinging to it. Underneath all this, lying flat at the bottom of the trunk, were papers, including posters from old music hall and vaudeville bills, mostly featuring the sketches of the great Fred Carnot, Tucked in amongst these charming relics were old black-and-white photographs of groups of dapper young men and fresh-faced women posing together in front of a railway carriage. Who were they, I wondered, and what had they been doing? I inspected the old photographs more closely. Surely that dapper young fellow with a toothy smile was Charlie Chaplin. And who was that one, standing over to one side, captured in an instant, glowering at young Chaplin as though he would cheerfully throttle him till his eyes popped out? Well... The answers were to be found in a brown leather satchel right at the bottom of the trunk, in the memoirs of the owner, one Arthur Dando, comedian. The first volume of these, The Fun Factory, covered the period in which Dando worked for Fred Carnot in the Edwardian music halls of Great Britain. The second, The Boxcar of Fun, detailed Dando's time crisscrossing the North American continent, playing the booming vaudeville circuits there for Carnot. Carnot, who called himself the governor, was the entrepreneur king of the British Music Hall. He created hugely popular and spectacular sketches with brilliant effects and enormous casts, and up to a dozen Carnot companies would be touring the country at any one time, playing something from his massive repertoire. Each of these companies would operate on a strictly hierarchical basis, with a number one comic, the star, at the apex, but no name was bigger than Carnot's. Arthur joined Carnot's organisation at the same time as another young hopeful called Charlie Chaplin, and both developed the same burning ambition to rise to become the next number one comic of a Carnot company. Charlie, however, was not content to let the matter be resolved in a fair fight. He used sabotage and downright dirty tricks to undermine not only Arthur's chances of advancement, but also his blossoming romance with a beautiful young actress called Tilly Beckett. 
Their battle for supremacy in the world of comedy, and their rivalry for Tilly's hand, continued across the Atlantic into vaudeville, and lasted until Charlie was finally persuaded to take the plunge into moving pictures. Now Arthur and his friend Stan Jefferson, Charlie's longtime understudy, were finally free to play without Chaplin, and all that remained was to decide who would be the new number one. This is where the third volume, the one you're holding in your hands, begins. It covers the period from 1914 to the spring of 1918, when the golden era of American vaudeville was coming to an end, the flickers were taking over, and Charlie Chaplin was about to become the most famous man the world had ever known. I've no reason to doubt that the memoirs represent a truthful account, and where Dando touches upon verifiable historical fact, he is invariably accurate, considerably more so than his contemporary managed in his 1964 autobiography, at any rate. Readers can judge whether or not Dando is to be believed regarding more personal matters. In editing the papers, I've confined myself, more or less, to the addition of a few historical notes. Chapter 1. The Room. Summer of 1917. Somewhere in America. What am I doing here? The pale young man in the dark suit didn't answer. He just stared levelly at me across the table, the faintest suggestion of a smile on his lips. I looked around at the room I'd been held in for who knew how long. Four grey walls, no windows, except a grimy one above the door leading to the grey corridor outside. We could be in a basement, we could be on the 25th floor, there was no way of knowing. I said, what am I doing here? And while we're about it, where the hell is here? Again no answer and the faint smile lingered. "'You know that ostrich was crazy. There was something wrong with it. There's no way anyone can say that was my fault,' I blurted out, unsettled by the silent treatment. The young man gave a small shrug, but said nothing. I decided it was probably best if I didn't say anything else until I knew what the hell was going on, so I buttoned it. We sat there for an awkward few minutes, or it might have been an awkward hour or two, I couldn't tell, until finally there were footsteps in the corridor outside. A jangling of keys— the door swung open, and the other dark-suited young man came in. He was smaller than his colleague and a little on the chunky side, but he was definitely the one in charge. As he scraped a wooden seat over to the table and sat down opposite me, I could hear the door being double, triple locked from the outside. Not good. This fellow's first name was John. I was pretty sure I'd overheard that earlier on, but I didn't think we were on friendly enough terms for me to use it. He wants to know why he's here the first guy said. The one called John nodded, but said nothing. He opened his briefcase, a brown leather affair fastened with a brass buckle, and took out a brown folder tied with a ribbon. He slipped the knot and withdrew a folded newspaper, which he slapped down on the table in front of me. The paper was the Dodge City Daily Globe, and the huge banner headline screamed at me, Charlie Chaplin slain. Oh, I said, that... "'Yes, Mr. Dando,' said the one called John. "'That.' "'Dando. That's my name. Arthur Dando. "'Although I hadn't used it for quite a while "'by the time these two sharp fellows caught up with me "'at Smoky Joe's on 43rd Street. "'Must have been the evening of whatever day yesterday was. "'I was minding my own business and two fingers of bourbon "'when I heard a man's voice behind me sing out those two words. "'Arthur Dando!' 
Before I could stop myself, I turned round like a fool to see who it was, and of course it wasn't some mate from the old country, or someone who owed me money, or even a drink. It was this smug slicker, this John, smirking away like he'd pulled off some great fancy stroke. Well, a moment later I had my arm halfway up my back, and I was being bundled unceremoniously into a dark motor van with no windows, eventually ending up here, wherever here was, apparently without any official processing or paperwork whatsoever. It had put quite a scare into me, I don't mind telling you. The not knowing was the worst bit, and actually seeing the newspaper on the table and realising it was to do with what happened back in Dodge made me feel a tiny bit better, because at least I could start to work out how to handle it. I exhaled slowly. I suppose he is quite definitely dead. There's no doubt about it. Oh, yes, he's dead. He's deader in vaudeville. Which I thought was an unnecessary little dig. Let me see you do four a day, seven days a week, crisscrossing the continent for six years, and then I'll listen to you pronouncing on the good health or otherwise of Dame Vaudeville, Johnny boy, I thought, but didn't say. So, I said, you were the police. No, Mr. Dando, we are not the police, neither the state police of Montana, nor of the state in which we currently find ourselves. Neither are we the Bureau of Investigation, come to that. Well, who the hell are you, then? You don't n need to know. All I will tell you is that our jurisdiction covers the whole of the United States of America, and that at this time of war, our p powers are more or less unlimited. John rattled this out so fast it took me a moment to catch up, and when I did, I quickly reckoned I didn't much like the sound of it. Even his stutter made him sound somehow more menacing, not less. Meaning? I asked tentatively. We can hold you here indefinitely. We can ch charge you, or we can return you to the bosom of your mother country at this time of her greatest need. It's up to you. My mouth went dry. The threat was unmistakable, because if ever I was forcibly deported back to England, it would surely be a short step double-quick to the mincing machine of the Western Front. We even, John said, almost as an afterthought, have the power to release you, if we so choose. All right, I said. You got me. What do you want? John leaned back and steepled his fingers. We want you to tell us about Ch Charlie Chaplin. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Chapter 2. Number 1. Three and a half years earlier. 1914 was going to be a great year. I could just feel it. I was sitting in a window seat in the specially appointed boxcar that the Fred Carnot Comedy Company used to crisscross the United States. The boxcar of fun, we called it. We, the comedians, were in one half of the carriage, and all the set and costumes for our vaudeville turn and night in an English music hall were packed into the other. The car was hooked onto the back of a locomotive riding the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad from Kansas City up to its Chicago terminus, where we would be hitched onto another train heading for Philadelphia. The reason for my optimism? Charlie Chaplin, our leading performer and the bane of my life, was gone. Gone. He'd left us to join the Keystone Picture Company in Los Angeles, left the booming world of vaudeville to hitch his star to the rickety and unpredictable wagon of the flickers, the movies, the galloping tintypes. We all thought he was stark staring mad. Now, Charlie and I had been rivals from the very first moment we met, some seven years earlier, at Fred Carnot's Fun Factory. We were both just starting out. I'd been spotted by the governor in a show at Cambridge, where I was a college porter, while he had been taken on only after a campaign of wheedling and pleading by his elder brother, Sidney, who was already a Carnot number 1. And that was soon our ambition, Charlie and myself, to become a Carnot number 1. We both rose through the ranks, learning the ropes, gaining good notices, and by the time the next opportunity to step up came along, even Carno himself couldn't choose between us. So one night at the Oxford he got us both to play the lead role in The Football Match, one of his classic sketches, Charlie playing the matinee and myself the evening show, and then he would decide. I was going well too, until one of the ex-pro footballers in the act, a fellow named Billy Ragg, completely wrecked my knee, broke it, smashed it up there on stage right in front of everyone, leaving the way clear for Charlie to step up to the number one position unopposed. And ever since, I'd been trying to catch up again, while he'd been using his exalted status to stymie me at every turn, even getting me sacked from the American touring company for a time. What's more, he'd taken advantage of my absence to get in thick with my girl, the lovely Tilly Beckett, with whom I'd fallen madly in love the first time I saw her gorgeous smile in the lamplight outside the fun factory. When she fell pregnant and he cruelly discarded her and drove her away just to save his own career, well, it was the final straw. I decided Charlie had to go. It happened that he was being courted by a certain Max Sennett, who wanted him to leave Carno and work for Keystone Pictures in Los Angeles, making harem scarem slapstick kick ass and fall over comedy films. The money was good, true enough, but Charlie could see as well as any of us that it would be a kind of career suicide. Vaudeville was booming, and he was beginning to make a name for himself, while the flickers were a novelty, an anonymous triviality, and the public already seemed to be getting bored of them. So Charlie wasn't about to give up all he'd worked for and take a leap into the unknown, not until I was able to play upon his superstitious nature with the help of a borrowed Chinese fortune-teller costume and nudge him over the cliff edge. And now, finally, I was free of the little bastard. I hugged myself with private glee and felt a grin spread across my features, as I had several times a day since he'd headed out west to flickering oblivion, while the good old Carno boxcar trundled east to continued success without him. Without him! My scheme for a glorious 1914 would surely now progress on rails as straight and unswerving as those currently carving our route across the plains of Missouri and Illinois. I would become the new number one of the Carnot Company, we would fulfil our dates for the Nixon Nerdlinger people in Philadelphia, and then we would embark on a new tour of the Sullivan and Considine circuit beginning in Chicago, then playing the likes of Milwaukee, Winnipeg, Butte, 
Vancouver, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Salt Lake City and Denver before finishing once more in Kansas City. Then, who knew, maybe New York, Broadway, the moon. And when we got to Seattle in just a couple of short months' time, I would, thanks to my newfound clout as the company leader, be able to restore Tilly to the company, and everyone would cheerfully pitch in to help out with little baby Arthur. Yes, he was mine, didn't I mention that? And everything would be tickety-boo. However, it had been days now, and the expected coronation had not yet occurred. I gnawed a fingernail and glanced for the umpteenth time at Alf Reeves, the company manager, at the far end of the boxcar, sitting with his elbows on his fold-out table and his head in his hands. What was he waiting for? It had to be mine, didn't it? Didn't it? The one serious misgiving I had was that Carno might stick his oar in, and there had been a twitchy day or two before we left KC as Alfred wired the fun factory for guidance, and we all waited for the governor's reply. In the event, when it came, Carno's response was simple – without making Alf's life any easier. Up to you, stop. My name, box office, stop. The message was crystal clear. It didn't matter who replaced Chaplin as long as Carno's name was on the billing, that was the important thing. I wondered, as I had done on and off for days now, whether Alf was considering bringing someone in from outside. There were former Carno number ones playing their trade in America, that's for sure. Alf's own brother Billy was one, working the vaudeville theatres of New York as the original British drunk. He'd been the lead in the first Carno company to play a night in the English Music Hall in the States, the very show we were offering now. Surely, though, he could command far more money nowadays as a solo than he ever would by going back to work for the notoriously stingy Carno, so perhaps that wasn't too likely. Billy Ritchie, too, was floating around somewhere, but I'd last seen the wiry little Scot fleeing from Carno's wrath through a dressing-room window after the governor had halted an unauthorised burlesque of our show by stomping up on stage to beat up the producer, so he didn't really seem like a viable option either. No, it was far more likely that Alf would promote from within. My credentials were well known, and Alf had been a good friend these last few years, so I was cautiously optimistic despite the nagging delay. I looked around the boxcar at the rest of the company, checking out the other runners and riders, as it were. Diagonally across from me, the well-padded figure of Charles Griffiths was dozing comfortably, his feet up on the seat opposite. He was a senior Carno player, a skilful comedian with great timing and a hearty soul who could be splendid if tiring company. A safe pair of hands, could Alf be thinking? However, the number one role in a night in an English music hall called for a degree of athleticism and flexibility that seemed quite beyond good old Charlie Griffiths. Beyond him, I could hear the constant murmur of the ongoing poker game. George Seaman was in charge, as usual. He and his wife Emily had been with Carno for donkey's years, reliable foot soldiers, never looking to do more than make a steady living on the boards, fattened nicely by George's takings from the card table. I couldn't see George stepping up nor could I see a potential number one in any of the marks he was currently milking of their weekly wage. There was Freddie Carno Jr., with whom I often shared a room on our tours. He was the governor's son, which should have counted for something, but he'd found it mighty hard to persuade his old man to let him have his go as a performer, and the suspicion remained that Carno was just letting him stretch his legs before hauling him back to the office to chain him to a desk. Next to him was Albert Austin, a mournful stick insect of a fellow who might have been the only one of us who was really missing Charlie Chaplin, having inexplicably shared the little man's opinion that the sun shone from his backside. Opposite him was Billy Crackles, a young man with a fine star comic's name, but an over-fondness for the bottle that surely ruled him out. 
Bert Williams had once had a solo act as a ventriloquist, and he'd only just been allowed to rejoin the card school, having stung them all during one blackjack session by making them all twist until they bust by calling for them out of the side of his mouth. Stout fellows all, but I couldn't see a leader there, nor could I at the next table over, where George's wife Emily was teaching our 16-year-old songbird Annie Forrester the rudiments of knitting, with the help of Amy Reeves, Alf's wife, whom I'd known since she was Miss Amy Minister. The ladies were all accomplished comic performers, no doubt about it, reliable, smart, and with a real twinkle about each of them, but the simple fact was that Carno had never yet produced a sketch where the number one part was female. I looked over at Stan Jefferson, sitting by himself, gazing out at the patches of thin snow that we were beginning to rattle through now, his breath steaming up the window. He was still lost in thought, and I could just guess what it was that he was thinking about. Stan had been Charlie Chaplin's understudy back in England, and on three circuits of America, but he'd only ever got to play the number one role twice, both on the same day, in New York some three years ago. Charlie was taking advantage of Alf's absence on a recce to sneak a day off with Tilly, but he'd been unable to tear himself away completely and dragged her in with him to watch Stan at work. Once he saw how funny Stan was, and he was funny, every bit as funny as Chaplin himself, he never let Stan have centre stage again. That night in New York, by the way, was the night Max Sennett came to see the show and got the bright idea of recruiting Charlie for Keystone, not realising he'd been watching the brilliant understudy in action. I'd had the chance to put him straight on that, but hadn't done it, which was a secret I supposed I'd have to let Stan in on one day. Yes, Stan was a superb comic and a fantastic mimic, and terrific company to boot, and I knew he could do the lead part standing on his head. However, he was junior to me, and Alf had been away on the night of his New York triumph, and so had not seen how well he'd taken to the limelight. So I thought Stan was going to be disappointed. No, the real threat was sitting behind a newspaper some ten feet away. Edgar Hurley was a surly, superior sort of a chap, and he'd clearly been thinking he was far too good for the rest of us ever since he joined the company two tours ago. He'd had burning ambitions to be a number one back in England, ambitions which had been repeatedly thwarted by the governor. We all thought this was because of his miserable disposition and the fact that he made no effort to fit in or make himself at all popular. He himself, however, was convinced that it was because of his wife. Wren Hurley was quite a spectacle. Full-figured, voluptuous, dark-haired, and as flirty as the day is long. She had drawn me into a little fling during the last tour, and I'd been like a hapless moth to a bright candle. I say a fling, it had never amounted to much more than a few heated fumbles in the dark recesses of the prop compartment of the boxcar, but it had fuelled my daydreams for quite a while, I can tell you. It fizzled away to nothing when it transpired that she'd only been using me to make Ed jealous, and she'd been so successful in that project that the brute had given her a black eye. I realised with a jolt that the newspaper had lowered a little way, and over the top edge of it Hurley's dark eyes were boring into mine. I looked away. "'Come on, Alf,' I muttered. "'Not Edgar Hurley, for Christ's sake.' As we pulled into Chicago's Union Station, Alf Reeves suddenly jerked to life, got to his feet, clapping his hands, and called for our attention. The card game stopped flicking and shuffling, the knitting circle stopped clickety-clicking, and all eyes and ears turned to our company manager. "'It has not been easy,' he said, massaging his temples, "'but I have reached a decision regarding our new number one.'
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 